This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. My disease doesn't define who I am. It's just a part of something I have, but it's not me. I'm Tion. You know, I just happen to have sickle cell. But sometimes I run into people who are just like, oh, pour this, pour that. I don't want that. That's not what I need from you. I need to be uplifted. I need help to find a cure. I need help to spread awareness. I don't need, you know, the woe is me thing. That's not what's going to help us find a cure. I mean, you found out when you were seven years old. Uh-huh. Did you ever feel like, why me? Like, what, what made you even decide, hey, I'm going to go for it? I had the same dream since I was seven. And I always had a dream that I was going to be where I'm at today. Doing a podcast with me? Yes, I, I just <laughs> knew it. <laughs> no, you're so funny. But I, I just knew I wanted to be a singer, and I always saw myself on stage with people screaming. Seems to me you're an all-around artist. You have this one quote, um, true for you and true for many people. You say, life is tough. And for many years, I felt like I've worked to get sick and worked to get better just to get sick again. I'm learning to find a balance and just live. You lose people and you fall ill and bad things can happen. But it's also really miraculous. You can have babies you were told you'd never have. You can bring joy to millions of people with your music. You can feel love and happiness and faith. You can decide that you're stronger than any obstacle and you can empower yourself to survive. The light always returns. And I thought this was a very beautiful concept. Thank you so much. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Well, I know. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within just 24 hours. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. You may, actually you probably, have heard of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. I call them choose-yourself currencies because they don't depend on any institutions to function. And they're simply exploding in price right now. Some have jumped as high as 3,000%. 21,000%, and even a rare 81,000%. If you're missing out on this boom, don't worry, you're not alone. Most people are not investing in crypto simply because they don't even know how to get started. So I decided to do something about that. I want to help listeners like you get started in this booming market. So I'm offering a free six-video series masterclass on cryptocurrencies, all for free. I'll walk you step-by-step through the entire process. If you're interested in claiming this free masterclass, please go to altature.io. That's altature.io slash masterclass, where you'll find all of the details. Oh, do you like, is it Tian? I don't know, I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. Tian. And do you yep. like that versus T-Boz or what do you prefer? 
Whatever you want to call me. Okay. Either or. I go by both of them. Yeah, you you say that in the book. I know, right? So, I do, I do. So but you really read this thing. I did. Awesome. I, I wouldn't write over. I wouldn't do a podcast with you if I didn't read the whole thing. I love it. Uh, so I can't believe I have a living legend right here, Tion Watkins, otherwise known as T Boz, otherwise known as the T of TLC. <laughs> Welcome, T Boz. Thanks for having me. I'm going to do an intro, but fill me in wherever I miss up. But uh, you were the biggest girl band in American history. 65 million albums sold. I, 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 I bet most people know that, but I bet they don't know that the one band that was actually bigger worldwide was Spice Girls. I didn't know that part. Yeah. I thought you were bigger than the Spice Girls. I know. When I think we're, uh, we moved up as far as sales, I know, is is surpassed the 65, but I don't know if we caught them because we're still the biggest American girl group of all time. Well, you've won a ton of Grammys, a ton of uh, MTV video awards, uh, so many different awards. They can look that up on Wikipedia. Well, <laughs> what I want to talk about is mm-hmm. you have a brand new book. Yes. It's called A Sick Life, uh, TLC and Me. Stories from on and off the stage. It's a big subtitle. I had to. I had to read I that know, off the book. I, I hate subtitles. So do I. And they kept bugging me about coming up with one. So actually, the girl I wrote the book with, who helped me write it, like I was like, "Girl, just come up with something." Because the one that I had, I don't think stuck. And I was just like, I, "I'm cool with just a sick life. I don't care if we have a subtitle." So they wanted one. So I'm like, "All right, well, whatever." And I went with that last minute. Well, and 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 so so just to start off, I think, the, I mean, the book is about when you when you call it a sick life, the book is about, uh, in part or in large part, you've had sickle cell anemia mm-hmm. since birth. Mm-hmm. We all realized that in the mid '90s during the the huge arc up of TLC that you know this was why occasionally you were getting sick and and leaving you know the concerts or the stage or whatever mm-hmm. and and actually have to go to the hospital and so on then you had a, a brain tumor you had all these things you had surgery on the brain tumor you had all sorts of problems related to that surgery and still you kept coming back and back and back and reinventing yourself and reinventing your career and uh finding new purpose to go to go on the doctors told your 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 mom when you were seven years old She's not going to live till past 30. Mm -hmm. Then they said, you're not going to live till past 45. I won't reveal your age, but (laughs) I'm okay. You've beaten both of those. I'm uh, proud. I'm 47. I'm proud to say, yeah, because, hey, I was told I couldn't have those numbers. So I I shout it out loud every time. I'm not one of them chicks that's scared to tell how old I am. And I, I think, I think when you say a sick life, also you've had a sick life in the in the in the best sense of the word. Absolutely, you've been to the the top of the mountain, and like you say, you've been able to shout it out loud. Like you've Mm -hmm. you've been able to express yourself. And I think one of the reasons, I believe me, I'm going to have a lot of questions for you. I'll finish this in a second. (laughs) But I think one of the reasons um, you guys were so successful, Mm -hmm. in addition to kind of combining R and B and and hip hop and so on, but I think the the words to your songs were were yours. They were so inspirational. Mm-hmm. Yours as a group, you know, and and they were so inspirational to to kids growing up then and adults. And they were about you know self empowerment and and being who you are. And I think to some extent that's what you were able to do. And I see that through this book. Like you were sick, and you had to focus on how can I be the best this moment because who knows what what the future holds. And yes. of course, being the best this moment was the key to every success you've had. So, mm-hmm, true. 
Well, here, here's, so I'm going to start off with the first question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it seems like when you started, like let's say back in 1990, mm -hmm. uh, L.A. Reid's wife, Pebbles, was putting mm -hmm. together a, a girl group. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like, unlike many acts, you guys started off just like a cannonball out of the cannon. You were like on fire from album number one. Mm -hmm. And it was only later, you know, that problems and the, and the, the ups and downs started to happen. Right. What, what do you think made you guys so special right in the beginning? I think it's a combination of things. For one, we had an undeniable chemistry that you couldn't package even if you tried. It was just natural. And I believe it was meant to be. And then also, um, we were different, you know? We stood for different things. Our sound was different. My tone was different. Our lyrical content, I mean, yeah, our lyrical content stood out. What we talked about, it was real relatable, but put to a catchy tune, and we had great dance moves to every hook. So, and the reason why I know that answer now is because after the first album, and you have to reinvent yourself to make the second album, you have to figure out why they liked you in the first place. Then that's when I got to really know myself on Crazy Sexy Cool. Like, okay, what did I do? You know? But are you afraid to, are you afraid to imitate too much? Uh, on the second album, what you did on the first, because then people say, "Ah, oh, she's just, re she's just saying the same thing again, same beat, same thing." No, because we, I don't think we imitated it at all. Only thing, well, the the regimen that we have that stays the same is the strong lyrical content, and we have subject matters that are relatable to any person, any age, and any walk of life. So that part, I think, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But of course, with time, you grow and evolve, you know? So then we were like real tomboyish, and then we kind of stepped it up with creep and all that kind of stuff with the silk pajamas. So we showed a more womanly side of us. So we kept growing, I think, every album. And fan mail, I think, was a little ahead of his time because some people couldn't get with it at first. They were like, wait a minute, what? You know, they didn't understand it. Yeah, but at the same time uh, with fan mail, your third album, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you have the song Unpretty, which was yes. such an important song for all girls or women who were being, you know, let's say pushed by media or mm -hmm. friends or spouses or boyfriends, or whatever, uh, into changing their looks and changing who they were. I mm -hmm. think that was real inspirational to just be yourself. And I think, again, that's something that you've always been able to do with each album. Uh, you know, so actually, if we're going to get into the, the the songs a little bit, I have questions on um, Crazy Sexy Cool. I think that's where Waterfalls was on. Mm -hmm. So in that one, it seems like you're saying, follow your dreams, but don't go too far. <laughs> don't 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 dream the impossible yet. Am I am I incorrect in the in the interpretation? No, that's a that's a part of it, but it's also how it also has to do with, you know, when you are dreaming, just stay on the good path. Don't you know fall for the um, peer pressure and that's what because we put it in a metaphor like stick to the rivers and lakes that you're used to. So you know you can still be successful and have your dreams and and go through life without going about it the wrong way. What what's the wrong way? So that's why first first we we're talking about a boy. He wanted to be successful, but instead of trying something else, he sold drugs. But he lost his life. Second verse. I'm talking about a couple. A guy sleeps with a promiscuous woman with no protection. She had AIDS and he caught it and he died too. So we were talking about some heavy things. But for that song, for me, you know, what I learned is 
people with HIV and AIDS felt that that we were sticking up for them and that we we were the voice for them to put it out there because it was a big epidemic, but no one was, they were kind of shying away from talking about it. And we just came with it with a dance tune because when we first came with this song, Clive Davis was like, oh, this isn't going to work. But it was the kind of song you don't really bump to at a club. But if we had visuals, which we went to LA, we wrote this big poster board and he framed it like, please believe in us. If you let us do this, it'll be the best video. And that's our biggest song to date, the one that nobody believed in. Well, it's funny. And and I want to really dive into the sickle cell anemia and mm-hmm. and how you kind of persisted and survived that. But it seems like all along the way, you persisted through the people who didn't believe in you. And mm-hmm. so waterfalls is interesting uh, and and I don't mean to get into so many of the details, but like you said, Clive Davis didn't believe it. Right. You had to put up, you guys as a group put up your own money for to do the video, and you're very proud of all your videos. You would choreograph everything. You mm-hmm. you 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 would make the, the the dance moves. This was really important to you. Yeah. Uh, why do you think they wouldn't? Given that your track record, why wouldn't they just trust you to say, okay, we're going to make a great video for this? Because I think they didn't respect us yet. Still. Even after, by that point, you were probably up to 20 or 30 million albums. I know, right? And I mean, I I did all those routines and stuff, and they're like, oh, okay, so she's a good dancer, so what? But I think they thought their ear was better than ours. And the kids that I grew up with in high school were the ones who produced and wrote the song. So it's just like, we had to fight for everything. Back then, we didn't have social media and all these avenues that you know, help you get your music out. We had to really rely on the record company to back us. So it was like, yo, like we really had to sit in a boardroom with the record company and argue every point down, every video, every concept like that. And one thing I do give L.A. Reid credit for, he always gave us the freedom. Like I never had an A&R. He would say, okay, Dallas, Tion, go in there, create, because I would usually start first. And then if we didn't have a first single, then he would send us back. And once we had a first thing, he's like, yes, we're done. So, and and what's really funny about us is all three girls from the beginning, after the first album, we're like, we're not waiting for her to sing. I don't want to wait for her. So we're so used to not singing with one another. We would go one at a time because no one wanted to sit there like the first album and wait forever for somebody to get done singing. So we were never there at the studio together anymore When it, um, from Crazy Sexy Cool on. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So let's roll back to the the beginning of this where um, you have the first album. It sells like 10 million copies. You're already on the path to being one of the greatest bands in history. Not just girl bands. I hate that phrase. You were really literally one of the greatest bands in history. Oh, thank you. And uh, then you realize you're broke. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Right. What, and and that's such a classic story. Like you saw last year, there were two movies, you know, on the one on the Beach Boys, one on uh, NWA, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, it's the exact same story. The manager, in both cases played by Paul Giamatti, uh, uh, somehow is like, oh, you'll get your check later. The contracts right. are going to come later. And the same thing happens to you. Why is this is such a common story? And it happened to you. Maybe describe that story a little bit. Like how, what what were you feeling at the time? We were 19 and we had a dream. And, you know, the lawyer was telling us it was fair. So it's kind of like this. If I owe you $20, right, and I give you 10 and you take it, and you sign it and said, that's what I owed you, then that's deemed as fair because you went for it. You signed it. And But moralistically, we know it's not right 
But in the world of business and the music industry, that's called fair. When it's not, so the way we were signed, we were signed Arista, then LaFace had a distribution deal, then we were signed to Pebbletone, who, <laughs> and then we had to pay our lawyers, accountants, be taxed. Like, it was crazy. So by the time we got down to the bottom of the total pole, there was nothing left for us, and we generated $75 million, and then they gave us 50000 So we were like, where the hell is our money? And that's why we held Arista hostage. And so you, well, yeah, so describe that. You went in there. I didn't. I didn't fully understand if you were kidding in the book or. No, I'm dead serious. We so, went in there with guns. And and what happened? So Lisa we went was to Clive Davis's office. Yes, absolutely. So Lisa was locked up with these girls when she burned down Andre's house. A whole and story in itself. Yes, yes, that's a whole other story. And she had LaFace rent her a car, and we all got together. Lisa was the ringleader on this one, and me and Chili was like, okay, this is great. Don't tell our moms. Don't tell your friends. So she got the girls from the diversion center she was locked up with, and they carried the guns there. And there was this driver, this limo driver who had a crush on me for, who worked for, is it Classic Green Limos or something like that in New York? And uh he would always give me checks and 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 like stuffed animals, chocolates and roses when I would he picked me up from the airport. So he was our getaway car. So we go up there and Did he know he was gonna be the getaway car? Yes. <laughs> okay. Puffy was in a meeting and we were like, we bust in their meeting rudely, and it, I felt so bad now, but and we were like, I'm sorry, Sean, we have to do this. And so he stepped out. And I believe he called LA like, yo, your girls are bad, mad, bugging. Yo, what are they doing? You know, and LA's like, what? They're up there holding. They, and now we was like, everybody sit down. Nobody could talk. Nobody could move because we want to know where the money's at. And so Clive was like, I can't believe this. And I saw, uh, and all the girls went around the office, took down all the plaques. And we ended up giving them out to the hood for free in Atlanta. And I saw Clive last year or this year on TMZ lying, lying Clive, saying that we never held him hostage because he tried to lie back then and say we just came up there with bodyguards. No, it was all girls with guns. We didn't hold the guns. Our girls did. But we wanted to know. And then shortly after that, we got $2 million apiece. You know, so all of a sudden settlement. they found some money. But, but, but for a while, though, it was a fight. Like, they didn't want you. They wanted to take you to court. Like, why would they not work with... Like, like as soon as you were in his office, why wouldn't he say, of course, we're going to figure this out? Like, you were there, they, you were generating so much. I mean, he probably personally put in his pocket like tens of millions of dollars. They did. I mean, assistants were driving cars better than ours. Yeah. So, and our, our, you had to file for bankruptcy at one point and you needed to borrow the money. Not you personally, but TLC. Exactly. We No, it was personal and business. Oh, okay. We were so broke, we couldn't even go bankrupt. Yeah. We had to borrow $15,000 a piece from Andre Risen, and we paid him back once we made some more money. Sure. And you borrowed it after Lisa burned down his home? Yes. Good for him for lending the he money. He loved us. Thank you, Andre. You have always been a trooper, but he loved her, and she loved him. They just had that love-hate kind of love, you know? <laughs> oh, I, I know. <laughs> it was toxic, but... They loved each other. So, so why did why why do you think like L.A. Reid or Clive, you you had done so much for them? Why do you think they didn't just say, "Oh, of course, we'll give you some money"? Why were they like, "No, you guys have to file for bankruptcy and fight it out"? Like, I feel like there's there's some disconnect there, and and you you don't you sort of gloss over this in the book. Mm -hmm. Where I really want to know what why wouldn't they be basic? They're they're good people, as you've said. Like L.A. Reid was always giving you your freedom. Why wouldn't they just figure something out on the spot? 
I mean, everybody has their ways and let everybody tell it. They have a different version of this story. LA's reason is because they're distributed from Arista. You know, they couldn't. Babyface is like, oh, they didn't have as much money as we thought. Uh, Clive, it's just always a story, really. And I honestly don't know the answer because I was wondering the same thing. Where the hell is the money still? Like, I still feel like a lot of people got a lot off of the work that I I got sick in the hospital half the time. Like, I really worked blood, sweat, and tears for this. And that's why we came up there with guns, because it was serious. We wanted to know where our money is. You over here, I'm almost killing myself to be number one. And, you know, in the world, we're like on all top of the charts. We're like the biggest group now. Everybody's at our concerts. We're selling out Madison Square Garden. We have people like Janet Jackson and Prince. Like, you know, like, this is my favorite group, blah, blah, blah. But we're broke. So we would use little symbols. Like, if you look at the Waterfall picture, and it's a cartoon, we have our pockets out. That symbolized that we were broke. So we were always jabbing the record company. The case of the fake people on the <laughs> Crazy Sexy Coup, we were talking about them then. And But what about from, from tours? Did that all go up through Arista or on tours? Were you able to pocket on your own? Okay, so... Sorry, Pe- sorry to get into so no, much of the I, no, details. I'm, I'm, hey, I'm all for it. Pebbles put us on the Hammer Tour first. We made $5,000 a night, and that was with everything. So by time you paid production, there was no money left. And she was like, oh, you know, she would always, like I said in the book, make us feel like nothing was ever good enough. Oh, you only have three million sold. You have people like Blase Blah that sold five. So we get to five. Oh, you have somebody, blah, blah, blah. We get to 10. Oh, you have people like Whitney who did bodyguard. So now that I've sold as much as all of them, what would be your excuse? Like, I don't know if she did it. To keep us on our toes, to make us feel like, you know what, you still have more to work for. I don't know if she did it to make us feel bad. I don't know why they chose to do some of the things but, they did. And she was, at the time, married to L.A. Reid. Yes. So why uh, why did you, given that it was the two of them, really, like, I was always amazed in, in, in the book, and I admire you for it. I guess you saw these guys were really good for fostering and developing your creativity. Why did you keep working with you got rid of Pebbles, or mm-hmm. you broke the. You, you you were able to get out of the management contract. Mm-hmm. But why did you keep working with L.A. Reid, her her husband? Because really, the problem really was with her at that time. It and, wasn't. And you with were him. able to separate out the two. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were separate. We were a part of their divorce decree. Oh, really? Yeah, they had a settlement of the group. Huh. Like we were a part of that. She was like, "No, that's my group. I brought it to the table. You owe me." So. Hey, we were part of that as well. So, but I think you can differentiate the two. It's not personal, it's business, you know? And he was willing, like, hey, that was his wife and he was willing to keep her group. So who who am I to be like, you know? Sure. That would seem like they would have a problem, not me. It's not my business. And I guess it's a after their divorce, a show of faith in you that he wanted. And she wasn't our manager anymore, so I don't right. owe her anything. So, so We th- paid a million dollars per letter. Right. So we don't owe her anything else after paying her all the money that she got for all kinds of things. Probably the most expensive amount paid per letter for any use of the alphabet. Yeah, I was seriously a millionaire for like a 
Second, however long it takes to write your name on a check and hand it over for the letter T. For the letter T. You Makes need to me sick that. to my stomach to this day. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to make you sick because we're, okay. we're about to start. We're start about to start talking for about your sickness. My mom named me, but I get it to for the sake of it was worth it to get the hell out of that contract for TLC. So let, let's talk more about sickness. So mm-hmm. you had sickle cell anemia since since birth. It's a hereditary disease. Yes. Um just to describe it really briefly briefly to listeners who don't necessarily know what it means mm-hmm. and you could correct me if I'm wrong but the basic is is that your blood cells are shaped a little differently so they can't carry oxygen around your body mm-hmm. as easily and that can result in everything from um, massive joint pain to heart attacks to strokes to all sorts of blood disorders and your specific uh, type of sickle cell anemia is a little bit complicated but has also resulted in all sorts of problems but the the one consistent thing is massive, massive pain that would happen at almost random moments, mm-hmm. including when you're in a concert or on the stage or whatever. So so when you were first performing and touring, um, what were some incidents where you kind of had to hide uh, what was happening to you? Well, um, the thing that's so scary first about sickle cell is a lot of people die from it and people really don't realize how severe this disease is. How many people um, in the U.S. have it? Oh, my God. I, I can't even count. They've said on the internet, but it's hundreds of thousands at this point, and it's derived from the Mediterranean, you know, that area. But um, my cousin passed away from it. Right, and, you, you cover that in the yeah, book. Yeah, my one cousin the- Donnie. But first, when I first came about, I didn't tell anybody because first, okay, I knew I had some type of sickle cell, I was misdiagnosed at seven years old and didn't find out until I was 28 years old exactly what type I had. And um, I didn't want people to pity me either. Like, oh, she can't do this because she's sick. She's sick. I didn't want people to put that stigma on me because my disease doesn't define who I am. It's just a part of something I have, but it's not me. I'm Tion. You know, I just happen to have sickle cell. But sometimes... I run into people who are just like, oh, pour this, pour that. I don't want that. That's not what I need from you. I need to be uplifted. I need help to find a cure. I need help to spread awareness. I don't need, you know, the woe is me thing. That's not what's going to help us find a cure, you know. Did it ever though, like when you were growing up, I mean, you found out when you were seven years old uh-huh. and in part because you had so much pain as a childhood, through your childhood, did you ever feel like, even as a kid or as a teenager, and this is a common teenage thing, like, why me? I, I'm not going to really be able to pursue any dream. Like, what what made you even from your teenage years decide, hey, I'm going to go for it. I don't, care, I don't care what the doctors have said about my lifespan or whatever, or, or all this pain that I keep having. I had the same dream since I was seven. And I always had a dream that I was going to be where I'm at today. I didn't know it was going to be as big. In this, po- doing a podcast with me? Yes, I, I just knew it. I was like, I'm coming there with him. With my hair. Exactly. I was like, and those glasses. Yeah, nah. they're all dirty. But I know, you're so funny. But I, I just knew I wanted to be a singer and I always saw myself on stage with people screaming. I always tell my mom since I was seven, I'm going to be on billboards and magazines and people will know my name. She'll be like, all right, honey. So for me, um, what, I mean, what did you ask me? Um, well, well, how did you, you, you have those dreams, but how do you, like when, oh, you're, when I, you're having a okay. massive pain moment right. and it's too much and it must be, de- there must be a second layer, which is depression about the pain. How do you get through that? No, I know what you, okay. 
So I was going to say, um, I hate when I go blank like that. I do it too. I'll do it in the middle of this podcast, guaranteed right. at some point. You do have your days. I'm not going to lie because it's hard. It's hard. And um, I think I wanted, I, the thing about I was saying earlier about not being pitied, I think I wanted so badly to be normal that I had that attitude to why I kept it a secret for so long. Did you keep it a secret from Lisa and Chili? At first, it wasn't like I was ashamed of it, but it wasn't just something I was a go-to for conversation for me at first until I felt sick and I had to explain it to people, you know? And then most people still didn't understand. I've been around people for all these years and they still don't get it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, you were on tour at a couple of points and you were you would be in the hospital and I guess it was whoever would say, no, tell her, even if she's in a wheelchair, she's got to get back on stage. Exactly, so, exactly. That's got to be frustrating. Yeah, it was, but you know what? That's their ignorance and you know, you can't really dwell on that. But I, I, you go through different stages when you have, you know, a chronic disease. You know, is that did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you go through this state of denial because you don't want to have it, and you go through this "why me" stage, and then you go through this fight stage. And at the end of the day, out of those three, I chose the fight stage because I wanted to be here. And then, and then, why did you decide to? reveal the secret like in the mid-90s to, to your fans and, and audience? People were lying and saying I had AIDS. Mm. And I was like... Oh, yeah, because I, you like bumped into Easy e once or whatever Yeah, it was. I just knew him in passing. We did a couple shows, you know, and I've always been cool. And NWA is one of my ultimate favorite groups ever. And Dr. Dre is my favorite producer. But I, I don't know where that rumor came from. And so... We didn't have social media back there. So if you had a rumor that was going around like that, it really had some power to it because you didn't have the computer to spread it then. It was like really word of mouth. And I'm like, hold up, wait a minute. And when I would go in the hospitals, people would come in the room, does she have lesions? They were gossiping instead of helping me. And I was like, I don't care what I have. The point is, is that I'm sick. It's not AIDS, it's sickle cell. But the point is, is that instead of helping me, whatever I have, you're here pointing fingers and being nosy and messy and you're not helping me. That pissed me off. So I, um, I got a call one day and they were like, would you be interested in, in um, you know, becoming a national spokesperson? And I was like, I don't know if I want to put my personal business out there like that. But then I sat with my mom and she was like, you know, this can be a bigger picture, you know, and you have such a voice. And my family was like, you know, you're always outspoken. You might be able to help people and change lives. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And then I started looking at it a different way because even though I'm on stage singing and stuff and I dance and T-Boz is more swagalicious and a little more cocky than Tion, but I'm scared to talk in front of people. I hate like standing at a podium and speaking. I hate that. But I had to face my fear and get over that in order to help people and speak at seminars. And like I've grown a lot since I became the national spokesperson, but I'm glad I did. And I think that I'm here to tell my testimony, to help someone get through whatever they're going through were, from were you, my story. Were you surprised that you had a voice outside of kind of just the music and 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 dance and videos that you were doing you know you'd you'd kind of like had that dream all mm -hmm. your life and now suddenly you realize oh this built a platform for me to spread another message to have a different voice were you kind of surprised how powerful that platform was absolutely i was surprised that people really listen 
And I started figuring that out, especially now with social media, when I would have an interview about something to me that wasn't that serious and they would blow it out of proportion. Like when? Like when they lied and said, I said something about Rihanna and I never said nothing about her at all. And I think she even at the time believed it. And I was like, like if anybody knows me, I ain't scared of nobody. I used to fight all the time. Like who's going to do something? You're going to what? Can you cuss on here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're not going to kick my ass. And like, what's really going to fucking happen? Nothing. So I will say whatever I really say, and I'll say I said it. I'm that person because I don't care. You know what I mean? I'm not like a a scary type chick. Like, so like, if I'm going to say something, I'm going to tell you I said it because that's how I was raised. If you're bold enough to say it, then be bold enough to repeat it to the person. So I've always been that way. You know, I I think that that, Philosophy. And I love Rihanna, by the way. And I met her, and she was a fan of mine. And I and I think it was squash, but it, I just want to clear up that yeah. I never said anything. And that was way in Australia. And it was in America. I was getting death threats. I'm like, whoa, what is the Navy after me for? Hey, I'm wearing her slides today. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I was just taken aback, like, that things can go so far. And I was like, well, you know what? When I speak, people listen still. Yeah. That let me know that. Like that. Well, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to read this this book too. I hope so. I hope so. Because again, it's not like just mess. about it's not just about sickle cell anemia. No, it's not. I think it's really about the philosophy you just said, which is be you know learn to be yourself, whoever you are. Yeah. And I think that that philosophy permeates all of the lyrics of all the songs. Like mm-hmm. when you look at something like Unpretty, it's all about being yourself. Or or Absolutely. Waterfalls, it's about you know being true to your dreams, but mm-hmm. being realistic with them. It's not about, you sort of see like a lot of songs now and I don't want to just trash modern music, but you see everything's just kind of written to engineer a hit as opposed to written from the heart. Exactly. And like I wrote I'm Pretty, but that was a personal situation that I went through. And I was so shocked that so many people felt the way that I did. Like I was hoping it would help people, but I had no idea how big that song would end up being. You know, like to this day, like people are boohooing and crying or saying how they didn't commit suicide because of that song or how it changed their life and made them feel like they weren't. Even Lady Gaga, like when I took my daughter to meet her and I recorded a song she wrote, when she started crying, she was like, I was an outcast and songs like that made me feel like I belonged. And I was like, whoa, you just never know like who you you have an impact on. You know, like I really didn't know that. So... And people laugh when I say that, but when you're out here working all the time and I'm just constantly touring and I'm grinding, I don't get to talk to people and know those things. So it was kind of like around the era after, around after Crazy Sexy Cool, I started really getting to connect with fans and really hear the impact that we had. And now with social media, you really get to know more about your fans. And um I'm glad because that makes me feel like the work that I worked so hard for or went in the hospital for, I got sick over and all that, it was worth it. It gives me something to feel like my job is being done. I think it's also interesting that Unpretty started out as a poem. Mm-hmm. It was in your book Thoughts, right? Yes. So, so you've, fa- you've, throughout your career, found different outlets for your creativity. I mean, not only you singing, but you choreographed, you did these videos, you mm-hmm. wrote a book of poetry. Um, and then we were able to, uh, again, I think you're, all the lyrics and songs are very original as opposed to many bands just starting out. They'll not be as as original or they'll kind of 
you know, mix different co covers or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think you, I think that's what really set you apart from so many other bands at the time. Oh, thank you. I think it was organic. And I think people can feel when something is natural and true and real. And everything we talk about, somebody, somewhere, at any age, in any walk of life can relate to at some point of something we've said at some point in these 25 years. So, so, so let's reel forward, you, you, brain tumor. Yeah. <laughs> so it's bad enough all your blood cells are sick. <laughs> right. <Now you're, laughs> I love that. All your blood cells are sick. Yeah, true. Now your brain gets sick. Yeah. What, what was happening? That, even though I've had sickle cell, that was one of the most trying and hard times for me ever in my life, ever. Because... Like they gave you a choice. I mean, I'll let you tell the story. Yeah. So I was going around and I would always have migraines and they got so bad to the point I started getting dizzy and almost passing out. And they were saying, oh, you got tension headaches. I go to the hospital. They give me a shot in my butt. Oh, just take this. It'll help. You know, yeah, I got rid of my headache, but we're not knowing something's growing in my head, you know. And um, I was dating a football player at the time and him and my mom were like pissed, like, yo, you're getting headaches every day now. You're getting dizzy. I'm tired of you laying in the dark. You know, I had to take pain pills for the headache because like I said, nothing was working. Pain medicine wasn't even working. I was getting massages. I thought I was stressed out. I was like, TLC makes me sick. They're stressing me out. You know, I'm blaming everybody. Um, acupuncture, nothing was working. So they said, damn it, Tian, go get an MRI. So I'm like, oh, okay, I will. So I'm out shopping. And uh, my doctor calls and says, where are you? I said, I'm shopping. You know, he's like, go home and call me. I said, no, I don't want to. Tell me now. Yeah, don't you hate that? Like, yeah, what like, are you supposed so to dramatic. Do? Do you drive home, worry the entire time? Like, how are you supposed to get home? Yeah. Why does he have to wait until you're home? Because people panic. And I'm not a panicker. You already know this about me. I said, Dr. B, come on now. Like, I didn't been sick my since birth. Like, is it? What are you going to tell me? I have a brain tumor? I just kind of blurted it out because I was thinking like, well, it can't be an aneurysm because my ass is walking around shopping, you know, for all this time, you know. And I said it, not really thinking he was going to say, yeah. He got quiet. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> are you, what? And instantly like this tear ran down my eye. I'm like, what else am I going to have to deal with? Are you kidding me? That was the longest four days of my life, not knowing what was in my head, if it was cancerous, if it, I was doomed, if I was going to die. Like, I didn't know what. And I couldn't find my mom. And that really made it more messed up because my mom is my everything. Like, she's the person, my go-to. And her ass where, is out shopping mom? in Iowa. I was so mad at her. She missed my birth and my daughter because she went to uh, North Carolina to shop and the baby came early. I was so mad. I'm like, here you are shopping again at another traumatic moment for me. And so she called me back and I am not good at delivering bad news. I just blurred out, mom, this have a break, so I don't know what I'm going to do. And she's like, what? Like, you know, I don't, I don't soften the blow. I don't know how to tell y'all. I go, hey, what are you doing? Well, they say I have a brain tumor, so I don't know how to deliver news like that. It's just, what the hell? Just say it. I don't know how to walk around the mulberry bush. I'm kind of like a straight shooter. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to ease words to you in a way that, I don't know. My friends were like, what? You're crying and bawling. But I don't know how to say things like that except for just to say it. And so as a mother, I couldn't imagine how my mom felt. And I felt so bad when we went to this doctor's office and I saw her glaring out and I seen her mumble the words, I wish it was me. And I just was like, 
so heartbroken because I didn't want her to feel that way, you know? And I was like, well, I have to really fight to stay here because I don't want my mom to die like or be in this position. Well, what did the doctor say were your chances? I mean, they gave you a couple choices. And, mm-hmm. and then what happened? The choices weren't that great. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine there's any choice. I can't imagine the, any of the choices after saying you have a brain tumor. I can't imagine any of them are great <laughs> after, <laughs> right. that, after that sentence. But I mean, you know, sometimes you hear like, oh, we could take it out with no problem. That wasn't the issue with me. Mm-hmm. It was, well, you're kind of getting up there in age and, you know, you have sickle cell. So any trauma from sickle cell can cause a crisis. Your heart can stop. Your lungs can collapse. We want you to take 12 pints of blood, but there's, you know, um, uh, uh, percentage that you can get HIV or hepatitis from a a 30. It was like 30, 33 percent or something per bag. That's crazy. I didn't know that. that, that, Back then. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, what? Like, nah. I'm like, I'm not doing that. Then they was like, well, we can gamma knife your head. And I was like, what the hell is that? We'll put four screws in your head and we'll zap your brain with this this laser thing and it can burn more of your brain tissue but the tumor will still be there and right about now while I'm sitting across from you they're like oh you can still be blind deaf dizzy can't walk talk hear see I was like hell no I'm gonna take the option I'm not gonna take the blood unless it's life or death I'm gonna take the option that you told me not to take which is the surgery no matter what my age is I'm gonna go for that and I'm going to take the chance that I could die on the table. And that's what I'm going to do. Because I'm not going to leave something foreign in my head. What I need to know is that I can come back and raise my daughter no matter how I come back, but that I'm back. And I, that's why I was determined. Like, they took my balance. And I'll never have that. But you can learn to compensate. I trip all the time. It's okay. We laugh about it. Now, my brother, he's so used to it. He doesn't even look. He just holds me up. He's so big, you know. But... I did three and a half years of physical therapy to get my sight, my hearing, my speech, and my like. When you first woke back. up, what was what was wrong with the sight? I could see. I could. I had all my functions. It was two weeks later when it all went to hell. Really? Yeah. So they say if you come out looking decent in surgery, you have a better chance because they didn't have ten years of technology to tell me what was going to happen to me. So I came out looking like I had blush on. I remember my aunt saying my hair was calm and I was so adamant about make my scar cute you know I, I have to have my t-boss haircuts you know they was like who has a brain surgery worrying about hair but you and I'm like well whatever you know but I looked totally fine but two weeks later I'm eating the food just fell out my mouth I had no control over my face I couldn't speak anymore my eyes just went blurry it's kind of like had a little hear. stroke at that point yeah and I couldn't hear I started crying. Like, what is... My mom said, no. Remember, this is what the doctor told you could happen. But this is just your journey back to the other side of better. So this is something you have to go through to get back to the other side. Because when I looked at myself, I just would bust out crying. And my mom was like, no, we're not going to do that. Because it's the same thing I said. This is your journey back to where you want to go. This is just a process you have to get through. It's not going to stay this way. So she started making me take pictures to show me my progress because there's nothing in my head at that time that you could tell me that I didn't look like the elephant man and the ugliest thing walking, right? So it's like, you know how you hear the story of the ugly duckling going pretty? I went from like that way back to the ugly duckling. So it was like, 
I wasn't used to that. And usually people with my brain tumor were already dizzy and deaf and like, but I had no symptoms. I was out touring and getting it. I was fine until those two weeks came after the surgery. And I didn't know how to deal with that because I could, you don't know like how many little things like blinking is important. They were like, oh, you can go blind forever, lose your cornea. I didn't know because I couldn't close my eye. My cornea could dry out. I could be, Are you they know. they up your eye? Yeah, like I could be, that. well, they wanted me to, but I didn't like it. So I would hold it and put the gel in because the tape just started irritating me. Yeah. It was just so many things, you know. I can't whistle anymore still and stuff really? like that. And I, like, no, I don't have no muscles strong huh. here. So has it affected you? Hasn't affected your, or maybe it did at first, but right now you're on tour. You could sing. Oh yeah, but dance. at first I couldn't even speak. I couldn't form words. I would say, like you know how a deaf person speaks, or how Forrest Gump would have a speech impediment. Mm -hmm. I sounded like that, like over thou. I couldn't form words. I had to do speech therapy. I had to do hearing tests. I had to do physical therapy when I would just look at a ball. It was so bad if you called my name and I say, huh, and turn to the left or right. Everything just went crazy. Like I couldn't even turn my head. So so what was your dealing with all that and, and, and dealing with the chronicness of it? Like you said, you were three years in, in physical therapy. Mm -hmm. What was the worst moment in terms of depression and, and kind of convincing yourself to, to be motivated to come out of that? Well, the first step was the first four days before I knew what was in my head because I couldn't get a doctor's appointment until then. And then you were you were T from TLC and you couldn't get a doctor's appointment? Not yeah. With the brain surgeons, they some of them thought they were God and they didn't care who the hell you were. So yeah. I was like, okay, whatever. You know, so that was the longest four days of my life. I was like, hold up, wait a minute. You're just sitting there thinking, why me? Then you sit there thinking, well, what if I could die? It's just so many thoughts because you have no answers. Then I started figuring out I'm a dollar sign to certain doctors, and they didn't give a shit like how I came back. They just wanted to take it out and get the money for the surgery and keep it moving because it's very expensive surgery. And I'm like, but what about my career? What about my face? What it's everything that affects everything I love and what I do. My dancing, my singing, my hearing, my sight, my face. Like what hello? So I kept hearing about this doctor, Dr. Black, Keith Black. And I met this guy, Rick Freeman, Rick Friedman, excuse me, from the House Ear Clinic in LA. And he said he works with Dr. Black. I was like, this is my team. And I didn't even meet him in person. I looked everybody else in the eye and I knew they weren't the ones because I feel if I stayed in Atlanta, I wouldn't be sitting here now, I'd be mm -hmm. dead. But I knew, I knew in my gut, I was like, that's him. And when I got to California, he looked me in my eye and he said, I'm going to do everything in my power the same way as I would my kids or my wife to save your life so you can have your career and be here for your kid. And I just started crying. I was like, I knew it. Because I just picked up and packed and moved to L.A. I didn't even meet him yet, and I just knew it, and I was right. I had the best team you could have. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Finding great talent is really, really hard, and yet that is the key that makes or breaks a business. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. 
In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. So he does the surgery, and then, like you said, two weeks later, things start to, they're, they're somewhat predictable, but they start to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's three years of, of just uh, trying to get through this to the other side, and you don't know where the other side is, although you're getting better. But I would get severely depressed at that point. It was hard because for two months, you have to sit up straight. You can't lay down for two months, 24 hours a day. That's impossible. Because at night, I would automatically slide down. We rigged everything to get me to sit up. And nothing worked. I would always slide down. I got hospitalized again. They went to open my head back up. And I was like, I can't do that. I don't think my body could take that, especially after the bad crisis I had after the brain tumor surgery. It almost took me out of here. So I, I knew I couldn't do that. I was like, I won't make it. Fortunately, something turned around. God must have been listening. I got to go home. And I I went through a lot of different things, but I I binge watched TV. That's when I got into Grey's Anatomy, actually, (laughs) because they had a surgery close to mine. I was like, oh, my God, other people know about this, you know. And I would watch the show Alias with Jennifer Garner. And then um, what else was my go-to? Like, I would just binge watch these series, and that was my... My getaway. And then my mom said, now, when I started getting a little better where I can kind of move around, I started getting really antsy and bored because I'm such a get up and go person. She was like, you have an idle mind. You need to do something. So I taught myself how to write movie scripts. Oh, just, just, hey, I'm going to write movie scripts now. Yeah. So what'd you do? I wrote movie scripts. And, and, and I have four movies now that now it's a part of the reason why I moved to LA now. Now I can go out and sell them. Are you are you um are you finding some success with finding producers and actors and things like that? Yes. What do you think is going to happen? I'm going to end up producing. Well, I've already EP um ATL. That was about me and Dallas's life growing up mm-hmm. in the hood in Atlanta. So ATL was my movie. It was partially about my life, and we did the crazy sexy cool story. So I plan to do the next movie of one of the things that I've written. That's great. Yeah. Well. So- I want to um, now reel back a little because mm-hmm. we're basically essentially going through the whole menu of your traumas and, and seeing how you got through them. And obviously one trauma for you and, and, and TLC was when your, your um, fellow band member and, and good friend Lisa mm-hmm. had a car crash and, and died. She's the L of TLC. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously that must have, I mean, obviously you mentioned in this book repeatedly that it was just devastating but mm-hmm. you guys kept going i mean now you're touring you and yeah. and the, and chili the, the sea and uh maybe you could talk just how you got through through that and what were the what were the challenges i mean you've been through honestly you've been through a lot more than most people like i think people say oh well she's got she sold 65 million albums everybody in the world knows her i don't think people realize that that's not necessarily the most important things in life it's not you know 
all this results back to your friends and family and your you know and the ones who really care for you who always been there and never went anywhere not the people who expect you to sing or or no matter what's like like if you sell a concert ticket and you, you say my grandma's dying people will be like so I paid a ticket to come see you I flew here you know like some people are really like they're like that they're like I don't give a damn what's going on in your personal life I want to hear I'm pretty you know <laughs> so you just have to take that with a grain of salt. That's the way people, some people are, you know, and uh, uh, dang, why did I go blame? What did you ask me again? So so on Lisa. Oh, yeah. That was hard. No one has a book on telling you how to grieve anyway, but to do it with the world, that that was like, I was depressed for two years. Like my creativity stopped. She was my creative partner too in TLC and I couldn't deal with that uh, because you go to the store, you see her face plastered everywhere with death numbers, birth and death, you know. Then you are in the line at McDonald's. Did you hear about Left Eye in the movies? You know that girl on TLC? Like, then people come up to you the next day and she just died. And they're like, I could rap. Like, what? Or they're smiling at you going, sorry for your loss, but can I have a picture? And I'm like, I don't know how to take that because you're, laughing and smiling, but you, I don't know, you know? So I just became a hermit and stayed in the house. Like, I can't go outside. You know, everywhere I go, somebody's at me or saying something or I'm hearing something or I'm seeing something, and I just hated everything for a second. So so, so your creativity reignited at some point. Yeah. And, and what do you think was kind of the instigation for that? What do, you, what do you think, what was your motivation? My daughter. So you kind of like, you had this one, you, not one, but you had this horrible thing happen. And mm -hmm. obviously it's horrible for, for everybody involved. And you grabbed onto something that was positive in your life to pull you out of this enormous negative mm -hmm. gulf. Absolutely. Do you think that's how it always works? Well, it should. It should because I'm not going to turn to alcohol or drugs because the problem will still be there. So and, and, but many people do turn to alcohol and drugs. But not me. Like, that's not my thing. What for makes one, you different, you think? I, I don't have an addictive nature, for one. Number two, alcohol thins your blood. And if I want to stay here with sickle cell, that's not going to work. Because for sickle cell patients, it can kill you. And uh, I don't like the way it tastes anyway. And I just, I'm a person that believes in facing your fears. And covering up something is not facing anything. You're just high, so you forget that moment. But when your high goes away... You're going to have to still chase that high on top of it while you're beating up your body even more. And I have a disease, so why would I even do that to myself? You know, so I already knew that wasn't the way. And I've had enough cousins to watch, you know, crackheads in my family and stuff to see that ain't that ain't the way I want to be. And I don't like being out of control. Like, I've had enough drugs in the hospital to know, like, this shit is strong and you're, like, out of control. Because I am a cuckoo bird. Me and medicine don't get along. I am absolutely crazy as hell on medication in the hospital, I see rats. Like I be, it's like, I be tripping, you know? I be hallucinating. Like me and medicine is just not my thing. So I wanted to face my fear, but it, the-, the and just to prove to you, I read the book, morphine is what makes you see rats. Yes. So there see, you go. Yes, it does. An obscure my little aunt, my, half aunt, My sentence. grandma saw rats too, so I know I'm not that crazy. There's <laughs> something in morphine that makes you see bugs and rats. But my daughter, no matter what's going on in your life, kids are so pure and innocent. 
It's not her fault anything in this world has happened in my job, and God gave me this job to raise this little girl. So no matter what the fuck I was going through, I just sat down and looked in the mirror one day. It's like, get your shit together. You got a daughter to raise. And, you know, it seems like, you know, you mentioned she was your creativity partner, Lisa, and I think Mm -hmm. it's hard to have creativity partners for as long as you you did. I mean, you guys lasted a, a decade as as partners building this band. Yeah. Longer than the Beatles lasted, longer than many, you know, bands that we listen to every day lasted. Mm-hmm. Um, but towards the end, there was some distancing. Like she wanted oh, yeah. to do solo albums. Mm-hmm. You didn't include her raps as much on um, you know, like like uh uh some of the later songs on on Fall Down. Uh, why do you think that is? What, what was distancing already when, when it was starting to happen? She, okay, she had this thing with her father and Tupac. Um, those were the two men that she were, she was connected to in, in a weird way. Like her, her dad, soon as, you know, we were told we were in a group, the first thing she says, I can't wait to tell my dad. He was kind of like an army guy and, and I'm um, real strict, and he was a musician, and that's where she got her musical talent from. And she was so happy to tell him that, you know, now you could be proud of me. I'm doing what you do. Like, look at me, Dad. And right then, Pebbles knocked on the door and said her dad was murdered. Mm. It was like a movie. It's like surreal. Like, this really is happening? So the guy that she got with who kind of was brainwashing her in a way because he reminded her of her dad, I think she would just— she would just listen to everything he said, and he had an agenda that we could see that when she was in love, she couldn't. So I was in a in a in a state of mind of I was ready to be married, have a kid, and I grew in a different direction, and that split us apart. And like I say in the book, I never ever ever had a problem with her going solo. I had a problem with when she chose to go solo. We're in a we have a contractual obligation to finish this song. We took money. If we don't finish it, we have to give money back that we still don't have. You know, if you're broke and you finally get some money, you don't want to give it back and then lose it and be in debt even more. So it was just how she went about things. And, you know, we would be on set doing a photo shoot and she would just walk off in front of everyone. I was disrespectful to everybody there. Do you think, um, and... I'm saying this from a total point of view of knowing nothing, mm-hmm. but do you think she she had maybe some elements of bipolar or something that would bring her to these extremes? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Um, I never seen her act that way because we were really close and she would sit next to me sometimes back then, like she didn't even know me and just go high and turn like I never met her before. And mind you, me and this girl are the closest in the group. Like, we are close, shared all kinds of secrets that I'll always take to the grave with me. Like, we were close. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I couldn't get it. You know, but I said, well, you know what? I'm going to let her live her life and get through whatever she's going to see. She needs to see through this guy on her own. And she finally did. And she came back around, you know. And I always say in the book, I, I loved her in a special way because I let Lisa do things that probably back around the time I used to fight a lot, I would have kicked anybody's ass for some of the stuff she did. But I loved her in a way that where for some reason I would never do it. Because now the Trump Hotel, that's the one time I probably would have if she would have did anything else or touched me, it would have been a fight. But I'm glad it never happened. But she got me to my boiling point then because I had had it. What did she do there? The Trump Hotel... (laughs) 
She had already burnt down the house. Everybody felt we were all arsonists. And you know, one thing about us is, you know, when you're when you have a sisterhood like that and you love somebody, you can have arguments. It doesn't mean any love is lost. It just means you're mad. You have fights like that with your family all the time. But we're we're getting letters and challenges in the press, and she's going around saying stuff. Now, mind you, nobody, Nike, Adidas, don't want us to wear their clothes because she burnt down the house. Nobody wanted to mess with us in the business because she burnt down the house. But we were one. We were all burning down the house in everybody's eyes. So we had one promoter who was willing to still take us out. And that was Al Heyman, who does the fights in boxing now. And it's like, okay, so we're going to announce the tour. And not only was I going to do the tour, but I had a book tour to do while we're doing that tour. So I was going to make T-Bob's money as well. She decides before we go live, 30 minutes before we go to TRL live, she calls us up to our manager's room. I want to know where the motherfucking money at. Master P know where the money at. You know Puffy know where the money at. And she kept saying, and I kind of got quiet. Like, who are you talking to, you know? So Chili got mad, stormed out. And I just was still calm because I'm like, I'm just going to try to not pay her no mind. I said, well, you're not going to TRL and you're not going to say on live television that you're not doing this tour. That's not going to happen because this is the only tour that we can do. We have to get people to believe in us again. So at this time, I'm walking out the room. We're getting on the elevator because Bill's like, well, we'll have to finish this later. We're going to go to TRL. And I said, well, let me know what you're going to do because if you're not going to do the tour, at least I could do my T-Boss thing, but you can't mess up both my chicks. You know what I'm saying? So tell me if you're not doing the tour, then okay. Then I'll know how I, I need to rock my life and move on. So she still just acts like I'm not talking to her. So I'm pissed to the highest point of pissivity you could be, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using that word yes. in conversation. I am pissed. So my finger's at her head. She's stuck on what she's talking about. She ain't even addressing the fact that my hand is at her forehead. So she just walks out the lobby, runs down the stairs, and stands next to him and looks at me and says, so now... I don't care, I will fight both of y'all. Because that's when I really had a bad attitude. And uh, so I take off my earrings. We're outside the Trump hotels. I'm ready to fight her and her boyfriend. I said, okay, I promise you this. If you get in that car, this is going to be the best TRL that anybody ever seen. I'm beating you up on TV, live. So she chose to go back in the hotel. Hmm. And that was the one time that she got me to the point where I couldn't deal with it anymore. Because all the shenanigans and stuff, I just couldn't take it. But, and still, I don't even know if I really would have hit her. I think I might have, if she had her. But I'm glad I didn't have to see. But I still got blamed for hitting her because she went and called her mom. Her mom called my mom because we were cousins. And, you know, it became a family issue. You hit Lisa. I said, I didn't hit Lisa. I said I was going to hit Lisa. It's a difference. So we did TRL and we made up. And everything was pretty cool again. <laughs> Until, of course, uh, things went bad. Again. So. Yeah. So, so. Until she walked off set and then that became another issue. So I think, I think the, uh, I mean, these are just three of the traumas <laughs> you went through in this, in this book. If we had like another hour, the next thing, the next hour would be all you giving me relationship advice because <laughs> you've been through so much there, but uh -huh. you've, you've, you've really shared a lot of that in your music and, and poems and everything. What, what I really want to know is this is the final set of question or questions. How do you write a song? Like when you sit down and write a song, what do you do? Like the whole thing almost seems like magical to me. Oh, it's awesome. Um, okay. So I have a new single out from my audio CD now. 
and, and it's on iTunes and, and Play Store, y'all, Spotify, all that. But it's called Dreams, and it's about my mom. So first, you know, I'll hear a beat. Like, we went and had a writing camp, and it was so awesome. And it was just a guitar, acoustic guitar, and my brother's drums. It was nothing else. And what I felt at the time is I always think of the subject matter. And I write two ways because Jimmy Jam taught me a real cool way to write as well. So one way is I think of the subject matter. I usually come up with the hook first, and then I tell the story through the verses and make it come together in, in the in the bridge. Well, I, people always use the word hook. I don't understand what oh, that means. Oh, it's a chorus. So the chorus, and that's yeah. like what people and you remember have a pre-hook over and over. too, which is a vamp part that repeats right before the hook comes mm. in. What do you mean a vamp part? So let me see what song I have that I could give you an example. Chili's part on Unpretty. So I go, okay. I go, uh, I yeah. wish I could tie you up. That's in my shoes. That's the verse. The B set or pre-hook is both names. Is my outsides look cool. My inside's blue. That's the B set or you call it pre-hook. And then it goes, you can buy your hair if it won't grow. That's the chorus. Huh. Okay. And so, and then usually that's what, like, that's what the kids sing in the, because mm-hmm. those are the easiest words to remember. Mm-hmm. It's usually the most, uh, what would you say? Yeah, like, the why? hook is the catchiest part. So, you know, don't go chasing one of, that's the hook. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so the rest is, how do you make that? Like, you just said that's kind of the most um, musical of the song. Uh, what's the, how do you view the rest? The best part in the way that I love to write now is Jimmy Jam taught me this. I came to Minnesota and he said, I have a song for you. He didn't even play it for me. He said, go in the booth. And when I play this beat, hum down the first thing that you hear all the way until the track stops. So I said, okay. And I did that. And I came out and he said, this melody right here is the verse. This melody right there is the hook. This right here will be the bridge. And that was good at being bad. You must be crazy. What you gonna do with a bitch like me? So I was humming. So that became. Did you come up with the words on the fly? We yeah. We well after after we figured out what section was gonna be what. Yeah, then we came up with those words. And are those and words always those about something that you're going up through in your life? Not necessarily me, but things I see because mm-hmm. I'm a people watcher. I watch people all the time. And I'm, I'm like a sponge. I soak everything in. I watch and I listen and I look. And it gives me stuff to talk about. So good at being bad wasn't necessarily my stories, but I know people like that. Well, uh, Tian Watkins, uh, T-Boz, <laughs> the T from TLC. That T cost you a million dollars. Yes. The most expensive T in world history. <laughs> what a great book. Thank a Sick you. Life, TLC and Me, stories from on and off the stage. And it's great because I actually I want to read you something. I wrote down oh, cool. something I um I thought was really inspirational on here. Okay. Because it seems to me you're you're an all around artist, and I think a lot of artists think, well, I'm going to be my artist at this one thing, and everyone else has to kind of take care of business or take care of this other part of the art or take care of the video, whatever. Um, I think you give several pieces of advice for anybody who wants to be. In a real artist in today's mm-hmm. day and age. Because I think in today's day and age, more than any time else, you've got to take care of yourself. Absolutely. And because 
If you don't, no, nobody else is going to. And that was true, true. 20 years ago, but even more so even now. Even more so now, yeah, absolutely. Because now you can't, where are you going to put out an album? There's no, you have to do everything yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, you have this one quote, um, which is very kind of uh, stoic, but, but true for you and true for many people. Uh, you say, life is tough. And for many years, I felt like I've worked to get sick and worked to get better just to get sick again. Mm-hmm. I'm learning to find a balance and just live. You lose people and you fall ill and bad things can happen, but it's also really miraculous. You can have babies you were told you'd never have. You can bring joy to millions of people with your music. You can feel love and happiness and faith. You can decide that you're stronger than any obstacle and you can empower yourself to survive. I know things can get really dark, but you'll always feel better if you hold on. The light always returns. And I thought this was a very beautiful concept. And, and that oh, theme you. is permeates every event and incident in your in your life and in the mm-hmm. book. And the book's a great read. So thanks Thank for uh, coming on my podcast. Next one, I'll, I'll for ask for relationship me. advice. But uh, absolutely, I'm one, there for you. I got you. Excellent. So so, but uh, again, a sick life by Tion Watkins, T Boz. Go out and buy it. I'm actually the first review on Amazon. I gave yeah, you five stars. Thank so. you. Thanks I again. love it. Thank you so much. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it'll only take 30 seconds or less. And it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now. And it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again.